Hey everybody, this is David aka Macintosh. I just wanted to jump on before this and give a very quick content warning. The movie we're talking about today, A Clockwork Orange, deals with rape, torture, excessive violence, and strong issues of sexual abuse. So if any of those things are uncomfortable for you or are triggering in any way, this may be an episode you want to skip or come back to at a later date if you're feeling comfortable and safe with it. We just want to give everybody a clear warning of what we're going to be talking about today. Stay safe, and we hope at some point you'll be able to listen to it. Thank you. Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week, David's making me watch A Clockwork Orange. In the future, a sadistic gang leader is imprisoned and volunteers for a conduct aversion experiment, but it doesn't go as planned. Hmm. What did you know about this movie or this book? Not a lot, except that there's a lot of, like, violence. Yes. A lot of rapey violence, and that it's bizarre, but it's also very visually stunning. Yeah. So that's really what I knew. I think I tried to watch it at one point. I think I got to the theater scene at the very beginning. Mm. And then I was like, yeah, I don't have the patience for this. Oh, yeah, no. And I turned it off. This is not a movie for everyone. That is correct. I don't think it's necessarily a bad movie. I don't think it's necessarily really great either. But I do think it, it does stand alone in his works as maybe one of his most audacious projects for sure. Because this is kind of an unfilmable novel that he took on. Yeah. I've not read the novel. It's a gap in my literary repertoire, but, you know, eh, whatever. And I have, and we'll talk about it in the writing, because there's a lot of things I don't recall from the novel Mm -hmm. reading it. I enjoyed the novel a lot, but I don't recall some of the details from it and the allegory that it's trying to paint. Mm -hmm. I think reading that gave me a little bit more appreciation for what was going on here. Yeah. And then I think that's where we get into this. Did he accomplish the goal of this story or not? Hmm. That's that's the discussion we have to have. Okay. That's a good question. The budget for this movie was $2.2 million. Damn. Significantly less than what we dealt with for 2001. Well, yeah. That makes sense. But also significantly less, period. And it's interesting because this movie... He intended after 2001 to follow up with a filming of the story of the Battle of Waterloo with Napoleon. Mm-hmm. It was a this is a famous failed film project. Yes, where they were super in development with it. I think we're like halfway through filming, and every investor cut out because it just kept going. It, the budget just bloated out of control. Sounds like apocalypse now to me. Yeah, but even worse because yeah, it, it just no it died. It never happened. Yeah, at least Apocalypse Now had a finished product at some point. Yeah. yeah. No, no. And so he then immediately turns around and just says, I'm going to do this instead. Mm-hmm. Let me get just some immediate feedback about your feelings about watching this whole movie. It's a solid 45 minutes too long. Yeah, and I think that's due to the lingering. There is so much lingering. And there are moments where it feels earned and appropriate, mm-hmm. especially in the beginning. But then you need to tighten it. You need to, it doesn't need to go on as long. We know this is a facet of these characters, particularly our main dude. Alex. Alex, okay. We know this is a part of Alex's, you know, psychosis or whatever it is. 
that makes sense. So in the beginning, we're establishing that it doesn't need to go on as long later on. There's too much. I would agree with that. But does it need to be cut or do we need more context? Is it that what we're missing is the context for the characters and it's all visually told? I mean, there's some wonderful like imagery, but it's just interesting to look at. It doesn't tell anything more to the story. I feel like this is a very choppy film and not in a good way. Hmm. So I feel like it's, I don't know, it's it's a bizarre story, hands down. And so I I can see that being part of why it's done this way. But ultimately, this movie is boring. (laughs) Like it's, oh, violence, sexual violence, violence, sexual violence, singing in the rain. Violence, <laughs> singing in the rain, sex, drugs. <laughs> That's the whole movie over and over. And it goes on the cycle and it's like, then we get reformed, but then it's more of the same. It just goes on and on and on. And it's just like, what am I supposed to be learning from this film? What am I supposed to be thinking? So it's curious that you bring that up. Let's talk about the writing. And let's start with Sir Anthony Burgess, Who the that? writer of the novel. Mm-hmm. So this is based on the American version of the novel. There are two different versions that exist. The British version and then this one. And the British version has an ending that we'll get into when we talk about Kubrick's part in this. Mm -hmm. There's an an ending that is put on the UK version that gives you far more context for Alex and also gives sort of an uplifting note for the story. But the way that he built this novel is so integral to the allegory it's telling. He wrote this after he was living in Malaysia and his wife, his pregnant wife was assaulted by four American GIs. Mm. She suffered a miscarriage and had to recover from bad, bad injuries. Mm -hmm. And it got into his head as a devout Catholic of how do we forgive the most unpardonable sinners? Such inhumane behavior. And then takes this to its fully logical level. So in the book... There are things that are even more extreme than what we see in this movie. Mm -hmm. The orgy scene that we have with Alex's character, he's actually with two 10-year-old girls in the book. Ew. There's more violence. There's Mm -hmm. more depravity. I mean, that's one example of it. But the idea that he's getting to with it is, what do you do? How do you find empathy for a character that evil? Mm -hmm. So in some ways, Kubrick is almost more restrained in the making of this film from what the novel has. And Mm -hmm. I think part of that's an unfilmable novel. And part of that is looking at the production of this. Kubrick did intentionally set some limits because he wasn't going to put actors completely in harm's way. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to make it so that the audience would turn away. He wanted you to keep watching. Yeah. He's skirting that line between being a voyeur to something and being curious like it's well there's yeah it's a line i think i think also it's just if you go to the full extent that the book has Mm -hmm. literally i mean it's going to be called obscene and it's going to get kicked out of movie theaters yeah and nobody's going to watch it and i'm sure this film is gets that as well that is the big allegory that's trying to be told Mm -hmm. that's where i think we have a failure we never get that from the movie. No. And that is a hallmark of Kubrick's style of storytelling 
because he is only going to present us with the visuals. He refuses to give us context Mm -hmm. because that's how he makes his films. But that fails this story specifically. Well, the whole point is the question of like, how do you for how do you forgive or move on knowing that there's a person like this? Yeah. How do you reform a person like this? And the only empathetic character and Kubrick points this out. He says the priest is really the only moral and humane character in the entire story Mm -hmm. in the film that he's made. But I think he got so contextualized on the violence and almost decided, I'm going to make the audience figure this out. Yeah, no. And it ultimately fails this story. Because part of the thing is we we don't know anything about Alex before he gets this way. We just meet him. Yeah. And one of the things that makes all the true crime stories is learning about the origins. Very, very few people start out as pure evil. Yeah. Very few. Things happen. There are mental illnesses, but very few people are just born pure evil. And it doesn't erase their responsibility. No. Because so many people have similar circumstances and don't turn down a dark path. But part of how we study them is to figure out how do they get this way? And that's what's fascinating because then it becomes, well, oh, well, this is what happened to those people. These are the types of things we need to prevent or treat. But like, we don't get any of that for Alex, which I understand if you want to minimize it and just be like, here's this monster. Now we're going to reform the monster. And you are going to be directly confronted with his evil. (laughs) Which is fine, but we don't, we don't even really see him reformed at all. Well, like, no. No, he just goes out in the world and says, hey, I'm reformed. Everyone fucking hates you. He gets beat the fuck up. And then he goes back to a hospital to be re-reformed again. And it's just like. <sighs> there's a there's something to be said about a societal failure on that end mm-hmm. for that. I mean, we see that throughout this movie. Kubrick doesn't shy away from pointing out how awful the parents are, how mm-hmm. awful the system is, how awful the prison is. Of course. How awful everything else has failed and, Alex and in this moment. those are all contributing factors. The Millicent's have nothing on me, brother. Sir, I mean. What <laughs> <laughs> this clever talk about Millicent just because the police haven't picked you up lately doesn't, as you very well know, mean that you've not been up to some nastiness. There was a bit of a nastiness last night, yes? Some very extreme nastiness, yes? A few of a certain Billy Boy's friends were ambulanced off late, yes? Your name was mentioned. The words got through to me by the usual channel. Certain friends of yours were named also. Oh, nobody can prove anything about anybody, as usual. And I'm warning you, little Alex, being a good friend to you as always, the one man in this sore and sick community who wants to save you from yourself. And I also completely understand. It's like, oh, you did this horrible, horrible thing. I hate you. But there is no early context for his character. No. And five minutes of that could transform this movie. Maybe. But like five minutes from Kubrick is like 30 minutes on film. It's true. So no. We should point out that Burgess also created an entirely new language for the book. But suddenly I vidded that thinking was for the gloopy ones and that the omni ones used like inspiration and what bogs ends. For now it was lovely music that came to my aid. There was a window open with a stereo on and I vidded right at once what to do. Called NADSAT. It's a mix of Russian 
English Cockney slang mm-hmm. and then regular English. Cool. So things like droogies and every everything in this movie, it's fascinating. They talked about that very often when Kubrick was shooting the film, the actors didn't even have a script in hand. They just had the book and they would use lines directly from the book as the dialogue. Oh, that's another part of the problem. Mm. Mm. But one thing he did make sure of was the book basically requires a glossary. Like it takes you three good chapters before you finally go, okay, this means this, this means Mm -hmm. this because I've got the context. But like you have to have a glossary for these terms. Yeah, you just you need to understand what the colloquialisms are that they've created. Exactly. And he very much pulled that in his script to say, I'm going to pepper it in. Well, that makes sense. But I don't want to alienate no. you by giving you a fake yeah. language to have to deal with. You have to be careful with it. I'm already confronting you with this much violent imagery. Mm-hmm, yeah. I need you to stay with me a little bit. So talking about Kubrick doing this, this is the closest he's ever hewn to any of his source material. Okay. Which is kind of fascinating. Alex in the book is 15 to 17. He very specifically made sure Alex went from 17 to 19 in his film to avoid that controversy altogether. And then we talked about using the book instead of the Mm -hmm. screenplay with the actors. We'll get into this with directing, but the leeway he gave to these actors to sort of build this imagery, I think gave us astounding images and moments. Yeah, the film is fascinating. But fails the story. There is no story. Yeah. It's just, it's it's like torture porn. I would rather watch Saw. And what's interesting <laughs> to me is that I don't think he intended to do that. It no, doesn't seem he, like that's what he meant to do. But he didn't have a script. Well, he did have a script. Well, okay, but he didn't use it. <laughs> like, he's just like, well, this is what I'm feeling today. So this is what we're doing. And you know what? Sometimes it's just lightning in a bottle. And yeah. it's great. That ain't this. It doesn't work when you're dealing with something so heavy. Yeah, you you can't be casual about it. And I know there's nothing casual about Kubrick, but in terms of like 2001 and Dr. Strangelove, it's like, no, there's a script here. There's or there's a very set framework for what is about to happen so that like, okay, this is the area where like Peter Sellers can play it and that's okay. That's not this movie. I think in some ways this is Kubrick being frustrated with his process, especially after something like Waterloo, which was such a huge production and then failure. He was off his game and he didn't know how to get back. I don't even know it was that, but I think it was more a, well, fuck it. I'm going to make a movie on the fly and we're just going to roll with it and see what happens. But he picked such a deep, heavy story to do that with. Like The Shining would have been better for that. Yeah, maybe. It's just, it's, it's so hard to tell. In here, there's a really amazing movie, but he didn't figure it out quite right. Let's talk about his directing okay, and the trivia around that. His first cut was four hours long. Jesus Christ. And that's where he had to hire multiple assistant editors to help him cut this film. Because I think think it is an Apocalypse Now situation. He got in the middle of it and was like, I don't know how to make this. I don't know where I'm at. I don't know what my story is anymore. I have too much film. Yeah. I've done too much. And more importantly, this is where I feel like we start to get into the Kubrick as problematic territory. Oh, just now? (laughs) (laughs) What I mean by that is, like, in Dr. Strangelove, we're making a very silly film, but we talked about with that film that everybody on set was purchased in. Mm. Nobody felt uncomfortable. Everybody was actually- They were all in on what was going on. And everybody's watching it going- we're all just fascinated to see this guy working. Mm-hmm. 
And on 2001, they knew they were doing something futuristic and that had never been done before. And it took them four years to make e- that exactly. movie. So they like they just knew, like, we are creating film. What we talk about again with this, and, and there's some later context in the trivia that we'll talk about mm-hmm. that why I think, again, Kubrick never intended for this to happen with this film. Mm-hmm. But his process, as we know, is take after take after take after mm-hmm. take. Well, when you're doing that with a violent rape scene. Yeah you're gonna damage your actors. Physically, emotionally, immensely, especially if there's nothing in between to be like, okay, we're gonna, like, there's no, like, actual actor coaching in between those scenes. They just take their toll. Yeah. It's, again, that thing of, because he's working around union rules, because he's working in England, he's putting his actors at risk. Mm -hmm. And that's never okay. Yeah. And this is where that pattern starts for me. There are things like, Kubrick brought in a snake, that he knew Malcolm McDowell was afraid of snakes. He mm-hmm. puts that in the film, partially to beef up the intimidation of Malcolm McDowell's character, mm-hmm. but mostly as a practical joke. Yeah. The orgy that we see mm-hmm. is basically 28 minutes of uncut footage that got sped up. And at one point, that bit where Malcolm McDowell is like undressing the girls and getting them back on mm-hmm. the bed, which again, I don't know what consent was involved there. Yeah. It may literally have just been a sex orgy between those three that they just kept going with Mm -hmm. but at one point he pulls them back to the bed and Kubrick's just yelling off camera that's enough Malcolm Mm. not intervening yeah I do like that these types of situations have come up and now more sets and more actors are demanding a intimacy coach absolutely like a fight coordinator it's the same thing like there's someone like we're going to go through every touch what happens if, you know, like someone gets an erection? What, you know, like, what do we do? How are we going to personally deal with these as two performers in a way that is safe for both of us while still servicing the scene? I love that. I love that that's happening because this bullshit is what's been going on for so long. And probably the worst story out of this all is that the first actress that was cast in the rape scene mm-hmm. left the production. Adrian Corey stepped in and did complain about the long takes. Malcolm McDowell said, no, she was fine. She was game the whole time. My problem here is, again, seeing, <laughs> knowing, what, knowing that, what, that's we're what gonna, rapists say. But knowing what we're going to get to in a bit with the trivia. Yeah. I think what happened is Kubrick let everybody run free with the characters mm-hmm. and was trying to get the perfect image he normally gets. Yeah. But he never once contemplated the seriousness of the subject he was dealing with. No, it's, well, because. He, like his characters, nobody cares about that woman. Yeah. Or any other woman, really. They're just playthings. He just didn't think about it. Yeah. And it was never a consideration, which is part of the problem. Oh, it's just as much a problem. It's still a problem today. We're we're not excusing that. Oh, of course. It's a huge fucking problem. It's It's a thing of trying to understand, is this guy like a monster or is this guy... Negligent. Yeah, and I think we're on the latter side with Kubrick on this. And this is definitely where you get into the like, he's evil and horrible. But yeah, but he's a genius. But he's evil. Yeah, and we have to ask ourselves that. It's it's one of the things- We're like, being confronted with that a lot right now. Yeah, and, and, and it's one thing that- Rightfully I'm, so, rightfully so. With Kubrick, that is where I'm trying to figure it out because part of it is, do I even want to talk about this movie? Because if it is him literally being a monster and trying to abuse people on set- I wouldn't even talk about this movie, but I think there's enough ambiguity here from him personally that Mm -hmm. it's worth the discussion. What year is this? 1971. 
What year was The Shining? 1979 and 1980 was when it was released. Yeah, so a significant amount of time later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I know this is going to come up again when we do Eyes Wide Shut. Onto the visual side of his directing, which is impeccable and awesome, and this is kicking off a new part of his directorial career Mm -hmm. visually. Yes. They have a lower budget, so the dolly shots are shot on things like wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. He had brand new German microphones, so all the sound was recorded live. They had tiny, tiny microphones. Yeah, like the lapel mics, yeah. But like behind their clothes. So all the sound was recorded live. There were very, I mean, I'm sure there were overdubs of minor things. Yeah, there's some ADR going on. But barely any. And he had brand new handheld cameras with the new zoom feature. Mm. So there's all sorts of movement that we're seeing that you don't see in movies before this. Correct. And, you know, and this is after 2001, which is, I mean, gorgeous. Yeah. There's no denying it. There's still a lot of womb imagery in this film. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Dude dude has a lot of womb issues. I don't know. Uh, as a lot of dudes do. I would have expected more phallic references in his imagery. <laughs> There's a lot of phallic there images are, in but, this movie. But not... You know, I, I didn't get a sense that like when we would go into rooms that I was in a giant penis. Whereas like I went, we went into a lot of rooms and was like, oh, this is very womb-like. This is, it's supposed to like be enveloping you and most supposed to either make you feel safe or ostracized. I almost wonder if that helps or, with the off-putting nature of what we're watching is that you have the feeling that you're in a womb and now you're watching people get tortured. Maybe a little bit. Maybe there's know. that with it. I don't know, but that's definitely a part of it. I mean, there's a little more, there's a lot more like phallic shit in 2001 because you know, spaceships. Of course. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> well, we talked about Dr. Strangelove and how he... He felt machinery made by men yeah, no, was no. inherently phallic. No, that's great. I'm, 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 out of the corner of my eye, I'm looking at our Lego spaceship. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yep. Apollo rocket. I mean, it is aerodynamic, but come on. Well, along with the changes in motion, he's using lots of wide angle lenses in yeah. this movie. Mm-hmm. So there is a ton of weird, different types of sequences. And that was intentional to bring out fantastical elements. I get that. Of what we're watching. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, this is the first of many movies where he did this, where it's filmed using almost all natural light. As a response, mm-hmm. they think, to 2001, where the lighting setups were so yeah, elaborate mm-hmm. and acquired so much work. Basically, the cinematographer on this was using a Lowell kit. That's like a film school standard of lighting. Oh, yeah. But also, they have no money. Exactly. So, like, you got to go with what we got in the room. But this would lead into, and we're not going to watch it for the series, but at some point we should watch it just to see Barry Lyndon, mm-hmm. which he commissioned an entirely new type of camera lens. Mm-hmm. And Barry Lyndon, which is this gorgeous, beautiful period epic, mm-hmm. is shot entirely with natural light. That including like and white too, right? No, it's That's color. Not, okay. And there's like candle lit scenes where literally the only lighting is the candles. I love it. And it's captured... It beautifully so this begins that as well with him where he's focused on trying to capture the image that you see literally in front of you Hmm. and this movie really kind of kicks that off maybe not even for any other reason than they had no money (laughs) yeah all right let's talk about our two actors and one arpon because literally everybody else in this movie is like a british character actor that you would never know from anything (laughs) cool our main dude, our main man, Ed Honcho. Malcolm McDowell, 
as Alex. See how you're getting along. I've suffered the torches of the dam, sir. Torches of the damned. Prominently a Shakespearean actor, Mm -hmm. his big debut was the movie If in 1968. But this becomes his, I'm a movie star now. Pay me all the money. Except that he's still mostly a character actor. Oh, yeah. A lot of his credits are like low budget Mm -hmm. horror or thriller type films. And a lot of TV. But also he still does stage acting. Mm -hmm. And I think the big thing with that is he's just a working actor. He takes tons of roles and just does them and commits. He just does a little bit of everything. Bigger roles after this were Oh Lucky Man, the sequel to If. Ace is High, Voyage of the Damned, Caligula, Time After Time, 1982's remake of Cat People, The Player, Star Trek Generations, Tank Girl, Where Truth Lies, Mr. Magoo, Mm -hmm. the TV remake of Fantasy Island. Oh, yeah. I Spy, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, The Company, In Good Company, playing Loomis in Rob Zombie's Halloween and Halloween 2. Good choice for Loomis. Yeah. Bolt, Easy A, The Artist, Antiviral, American Satan, most recently had a big role in Mozart in the Jungle, and he will be playing Rupert Murdoch in a movie about Roger Ailes. Oh, that's good casting. Yeah. That's some great casting, and I look forward to that film. Let me get some initial thoughts before we get into some of his trivia, because there's a lot. Yeah, he's he's fabulous. I think he's outclassing just about everyone else on screen. Which is exactly what he has to do. Of course. They cast him very well, or they cast around him perfectly. Because in every scene, he is the most interesting person on screen. And it's not to do with his costume or the words that are coming out of his mouth. It's him. It's his energy. It's, it's his vibe. It, it, yeah. It's his whole vibe it's magnetic and he just has that thing where you're just like i'm going to stare at that dude i think your thing of saying like this movie is boring and it's like and yet you can't turn away from him i mean i can i can i know because like i'm gonna be honest he's not very attractive in this movie well no that haircut is appalling on his head he is way more attractive now than he is then but i also think that's intentional because he's playing 19 no no i totally get it and he was 27 but, when they made the movie. But but even so, yeah, he is magnetic in this film. Just the way he bounces between the narration yeah. and then when he's big and the leader and then when he's completely scared out of his mind. And I do really like the way he holds his body. It's It's very interesting to me. Originally, Alex basically is a Cockney kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the thing with this. Yeah. And... He specifically said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use my normal accent. Yes. Because I want to come across as the natural, bright, charismatic guy. Mm -hmm. And what will you do with the big, big, big money? Have you not everything you need? If you need a motor car, you pluck it from the trees. If you need pretty Polly, you take it. And it plays perfectly against the rest of his droogs, Mm -hmm. who are super cockney, mm-hmm. super down working class. Yeah, he suddenly emerges as this much he's different He's the refined one, yeah. With a loving family. Yeah. Even though they're kind yeah. of not paying attention, they still love him. Yeah, it's like, oh, we don't want anything to do with you, but we, only, we want good things for you. <laughs> yeah. we, we're just really fucking scared of you. Just go away, please. <laughs> he actually was kind of the heart of this production. He brought lightness to the set. He had to. He could belch on command. Love it. So anytime Kubrick was getting bored or getting tense, he would just burp. 
And that made Kubrick laugh. I appreciate that. The scene where the minister is feeding him and he keeps opening his mouth. Mm -hmm. That was all him because they were they were going on and on with takes and everybody was getting bored, including Kubrick. That's how he was entertaining himself. And so McDowell just started going, pop. Just, it's not even that he opens his mouth. It's the way he just does it all of a sudden. And you're like, oh my God. He's a it's bored so four-year-old is what he is. He said his Shakespearean experience worked incredibly well for working with the NADSAT language mm -hmm. and working yeah. around those words. Yeah. He said that he and most of the rest of the cast Thought it was a black comedy. I could see that while filming this, be like, oh, super dark, but we're having fun and we're being silly and thinking that like, oh, we're making jokes and like, oh, wait, no, that's not this movie. Well, I think, though, with a faster cut, I still don't know because Kubrick even kind of thought this. The first 20 of minutes of the movie are so harsh mm -hmm. and so traumatic that I don't know, even if you paste it as a black comedy the rest of the time, if you could still pull the audience back into that. Mm -hmm. But it would have been worth a try because that's probably the best way for this movie to succeed. It would be a dark, dark comedy, but that's how you've got to pace it. It would be interesting to be like, here, take the actual cut, the theatrical cut, go recut it. Take what you have here and recut it. Well, we'll get into that. Let's talk about some of his near misses on set. Oh, God. Because he did not come out unscathed. The Ludovico technique. His eyes were actually opened by oh, metal God. props. The doctor who is sitting with him is an actual medical doctor. Well, that's good. Who is putting eye drops in his eyes to make sure they don't dry out during the takes of filming. He was anesthetized so that he wouldn't, he wouldn't be uncomfortable while they were trying to film it. But it did scratch his cornea. Yeah during one scene and he was temporarily blinded and he said i will do the close-up shots but it will be the last day of filming yeah young actor willing to take the risk but said okay we're gonna finish every other fucking yeah, thing I, I can't keep before, working like this before i sit down for this last part of it yeah the demonstration scene mm -hmm. when the gentleman is trying to get him to fight and mm -hmm. yelling at him go on and kicks him he suffered a broken rib mm. And that take is left in the film. Yeah, that's usually how that goes. <laughs> uh, when treated, he also suffered a blood clot and had to be hospitalized a second time. Fuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is like apocalypse now. And there's always been a longstanding rumor that during the drowning scene that his underwater apparatus failed mm -hmm. and that he was drowning. That is not true. There's actually, apparently, if you really watch closely, there is a tiny micro cut in that sequence because mm. it looks like they've kept him underwater. Yeah, I was watching that one to Three see. minutes. But there is a micro cut where he did reach into, there's an open airspace and a breathing tube underwater mm -hmm. for him to grab air mm. while they were doing the sequence. Okay, so it's him putting his hand in the water to get it. Something like that or him just reaching forward. But apparently there is this tiny, tiny cut that yeah. Kubrick made, which again, I didn't notice it. You wouldn't notice it unless you're looking at it. Yeah, because I was watching. I was watching very closely. I was like, "How are they doing this?" Yeah, it's a long ass take. It, it's a very long take, and it is. It, it starts out as just like, "Well, this is annoying," and then after a while, you're going, "Oh fuck!" These guys are gonna fuck this guy up. Uh huh. Of course, with the rape scene, we also have singing in the rain. <laughs> Singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling! 
Yes. Which, okay, we, we have covered Singing in the Rain on this show. Yeah. It's one of my most favorite movie musicals. Are you ever going to think of it quite the same way again? Yes. <laughs> I know. This is, okay, so whenever I hear Singing in the Rain, of course I'm going to imagine first Gene Kelly going down the street, and yep. then I'm going to imagine when he died, that feeling of like, oh no, and how they played that scene, how like it just fills my heart with joy. And now, then now there's going to be this little footnote. Hey, remember this? <laughs> so now that's been added to the the role that goes on. So they did it, and Kubrick had filmed it and said something's off with it. It feels, in his words, too conventional. Mm-hmm. But it something doesn't feel in character for Alex. And so Kubrick said, "Can you dance while doing this? Let me just see how that plays." Mm-hmm. And so McDowell sang the one song he could remember. which was singing in the rain kubrick thought it was so good he found the 10 grand to pay for the rights yep and it's an mgm movie so it wasn't too hard to get i mean i will say it's awesome the violence isn't great but just him like singing in the rain keeps kicking the guy it's just like i mean without that it's not interesting exactly it plays well and bringing it back the two times they bring it back Mm -hmm. once while he's in the bathtub Mm -hmm. where suddenly the man realizes who he's brought into his home yeah because of course that's just a song that he sings it's just his mindless song that he sings and then the absolute insanity of putting it over the closing credits Mm -hmm. which really is unsettling and disturbing right after the final take of what we've seen well because what that also shows you is that there is this element of him that is never going to go away yeah that will always be in him because this song is always going to be his mindless song that he goes to just like the ludwig van yep and finally he actually grew close with kubrick on set Mm -hmm. after the film was over kubrick barely showed any interest in him And Malcolm said that he did feel very hurt about it. Mm -hmm. Later on, he said, I really think it was probably me projecting as a young actor Mm -hmm. because that's Kubrick on his sets. He builds intimacy with his actors Mm -hmm. and he really builds a rapport. And this is a common refrain from lots of actors. They've said like, you know, we grew this really big relationship and then afterwards he didn't care. And that's because that's what he does. Well, it's, it's the temporary relationship. I mean, I hear that from actors all the time, especially... When they're young, they get on their first set and everyone's all happy and sweet. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to hang out all the time after this is over. And then they never talk to him again. Yeah. And it's not a I don't like you or that time was fake. It's just I have to move on to the next thing. Yeah. McDowell did say, though, for a while he was upset about it, but he did remain very close friends with Kubrick's wife, Christiane. Hmm. And at his funeral, at Stanley's funeral, he went with Christiane and said he had a very, very long cry over his grave. No, So I, this, I get it. This movie for him... Was his breakout. It was a breakout, but also it was a very important role for him in terms of his development as an actor. Oh, sure. And so to him, it was a very big deal. This was a huge thing to be a part of for him. So it's, it's kind of interesting. The other big actor that I do want to mention... He's not in the movie very much, but he is a notable actor. That's Patrick McGee. He was playing Mr. Alexander, the man in the wheelchair and the man in the rape scene. Yeah, he's very... I I knew I recognized him. Why why do I recognize him? Well, he was also a stage actor. Okay. Before this, he was in the movies Concrete Jungle, The Boys, A Prize of Arms, 
Dementia 13, which is Francis Ford Coppola's first movie with Roger Corman in 1963. Mm-hmm. Ricochet, Zulu, Sans on a Wet Afternoon, 1964 is The Mask of the Red Death, Marat Saad, Anzio, 1968's Birthday Party, Hard Contract, Cromwell, 1971's King Lear, 1971's The Trojan Women. I bet you when we watch some of those plays in mm. theater, we probably saw this dude. Probably. And that's why his face is recognizable. And then after this, he was in Pope Joan, 1974's Luther, 1975's Galileo, Barry Lyndon, Rough Cut, and Chariots of Fire. Oh, Chariots of Fire. That's why I know him. We watched that like 12 different times growing up in the Ah, church. Ah, well, there you go. That's why I know him. You know, the vibes I get from him are the same vibes I get from the dude in Breaking Bad. The guy in the wheelchair. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I can't remember his name now. Mark Margolis? Tio. Tio. Yeah, it's Tio something. Whatever. Same vibe. I get the same vibe from him and I love it. Love it. While on set, mm-hmm. he asked Malcolm McDowell if he felt like he was too over the top. Food, all right. Great, sir. Great. Try the wine. Thank you, sir. He said, I'm giving such an overwrought performance, I feel like I'm taking a dump. (laughs) Nice. And Malcolm just reassured him. He's like, nope, that's what Stanley wants. Take a dump. I mean, it is a bizarre performance, for sure. Mm -hmm. But it works. Mm -hmm. That's the weirdest part about it is everybody's giving these weird, different level performances. But because of the chaos of it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I'm fine with that. I think I think all the performances are fine. It just goes back to like the writing shit because there's no writing. Yeah, we also have one very important arpon. Uh, the one that I was like, "Who's that dude? Who's that, that is dude?" Mr. David Prouse, the helper to Mr. Alexander, the man who lifts him with his the wheelchair beefcake. down the stairs. Yeah, he's, he's the beefcake. A former bodybuilder. Sure. You may also know him as the body of Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah. That's very cool. This was his first acting role ever. He'd never really done any acting. That's cool. But during the filming, he strode right up to Stanley Kubrick and said, can we get the wheelchair scene in as few takes as possible? Because it's a lot. Yeah. And he looked at him right in the eyes and said, you're not exactly known as one take Kubrick, are you? (sighs) Now, literally the entire crew was aghast because Kubrick had a legendary reputation. And this dude had never acted. Kubrick thought it was hilarious. Oh, yeah, because that's a, oh, this kid has no idea who I am. He don't give a shit. He's got a point. He just giggled and he's like, I'll do my best. (laughs) And they got it in six takes. You know what? Sometimes not knowing any better can work out really well for you. Hey, Kubrick got it in six takes. That's fair. That was nicely done. I also will say one thing with McDowell. Kubrick was on record as saying he had his character so perfectly engaged I rarely had to do that many takes with him. Oh, like, so the trick is to be a good actor. <laughs> not necessarily be a good actor, but to have such a clear vision meshing with his vision. Fair. Because I don't... He's He works with great actors. Oh, I know he does. But your idea of the character has to match what he's seeing in his head. And you if gotta be on the same wavelength. And if you're not, you're gonna do 100 takes. 
on to trivia. Holy fuck. And the most important part of the trivia, which is where we really get into what what was Kubrick really thinking here? And is there some culpability? The ban. This movie was long considered banned in the UK because after 1973, you could not see it until after his death. Interesting. But it was never banned. There were two copycat crimes that occurred in the wake of the film, a rape of a girl to seeing in, in the rain and a 16-year-old who beat a younger child while dressed in a costume similar to Alex's. And also, Kubrick and his family started receiving threats from gangs, kind of related to the film. Interesting. So Stanley, fearing for his family, pulled the film from distribution and said, I will not allow it to be shown in the United Kingdom. Hmm. Warner Brothers, working with Kubrick, they said, you know what? We get it. It was severe enough Mm -hmm. that they said, okay, we'll take the hit and we'll Mm -hmm. pull it because that shouldn't happen. And so, again... This movie was not shown in the UK until 2000, a year after his death. And video stores regularly had signs up that said, no, we do not have a Clockwork Orange. Hmm. So fans would have to order it from France and other surrounding countries if they wanted to see it. Before Amazon Prime, people. The very famous, at the time, Scala Film Club, which was sort of this underground Mm -hmm. film club in London, showed it unauthorized. Kubrick sued them and won and basically shut them down. They nearly went bankrupt over it. Well, that's unfortunate. So he was dead serious about no, like, how upset that, he was. But like Kubrick, like I get I get suing them to be like, no, I'm standing by the fact that this film shouldn't be like, I don't want bad shit to happen as a result of my art. Mm-hmm. Like I get that and I respect that. So I understand going after them legally. But them shutting down, like they're preserving art in a different, like you have different view. This is one of those things where it's like, okay, now you need to take all your millions of dollars and keep them afloat. I think more good was done after he passed with probably, his films. Probably. Than during probably his accurate. lifetime. He's a dick. This is, there's, there's no a like. Bit. There's, there's the Edward Albee. Oh, fuck you, dude. Stuff going on oh, with him. Albee. We could talk about Albee for hours. The movie was rated X on its original release. He yeah. voluntarily made cuts to get the R rating. He was worried that the theater owners would edit the film when it was shown. So weekly new prints were brought in and they were inspected regularly. Hmm, interesting. Because he's a control freak. He's a control freak. But also, I think there's some merit to that in that if we're going to tell this story, mm-hmm. it needs to be as I've shown it. Like, I, we can't. It, it doesn't. <laughs> well, it's a different thing. But what I mean is, if I let the theater owners do it, the impact of I, the visual I do under- won't work. I do understand that back then it was not because they were film reels. There was really no regulation on whether or not an owner was like, oh, I think, okay, we'll play this scene, but I'm cutting out the boobs or whatever. Right. They could do it. And they're, unless somebody was keeping track and watching them, they couldn't stop them. But Kubrick had his assistant editor destroy all of the unused footage. Mm. And this assistant editor who worked with him claimed, after the fact in his book, that Kubrick never forgave himself for all the controversy of the film. And any time the film came up in conversation, he avoided it at all costs. I think Kubrick, after releasing this mm-hmm. and getting this final film edited, mm-hmm. basically went, I'm frightened at what we made here. This is a mistake. I think this was a I huge made a mistake. Snuff film. <laughs> I, I, I think that's how he felt about it. And I don't um, know that it is. I no, think it I has it's not. It has a bit of merit. Like we say, it needs work and it needs a new edit and it could 
be really good. I mean, what's interesting is that this is the argument of Scream 2, that movies influence behaviors. And that's, you know, that's the defense for all the bad. I've watched all these fucked up movies, so now I'm fucked up too. And there's no doubt that what you consume affects you. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind. No, there are things that are perfectly fine, but if somebody's reacting negatively to it, you got to turn it off. Oh, I remember when we were first watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah. And we're we're watching like the first episode and we're like, okay, I I I think we made it to like the second or third episode and we're like, okay, I know this show is really good, but it is making me so uncomfortable and anxious. And part of it was that like they're dealing with a lot of mental illness but in that first season, that's not explicit. Like, you know what's happening, but nobody's using the language to talk about it yet. The show's definitely gotten better. And if uh, you're dealing with And like, if you're dealing with or... some of that, you're going through some shit and you're just like, oh no, this is uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, you just have to pay attention to what you're consuming. And so we just went, I love this show. I know this is good, but I can't watch this right now. No, I need light and fluffy. Yeah, I need I need sunshine and rainbows. I know. Hence My Little Pony. I think even more, I think Kubrick basically saw this and went, I had a clear vision. Mm-hmm. We all did. But I didn't but, accomplish what I set out to do. Well, and nobody is going to see it that way. I mean, this is two years after the film has come out is mm-hmm. when he makes this decision. Yeah. And I think it's because he saw the reaction. Yeah. And the violent reaction from so many people and went, oh, shit, this isn't what I wanted. No. This isn't what I was trying to say here. A- and, you know, I, I don't think he would have pulled the, the movie from distribution if, you know, his kid and his wife were get- weren't getting death threats. But Well, and, and s- people died and were hurt. But still, there is this feeling of shit, we really fucked this one up. <laughs> I agree. But I, I do appreciate the fact that he was that convicted about the negative reaction to the film, not in that it's bad, but it's like, oh my goodness, like real life consequences are happening that have been inspired by my film. Yeah. That I'm I'm going to take a loss here after already a huge loss with Waterloo mm-hmm. and and pull it. Like it's not it's not worth it to me. Now it only got pulled in the UK. I know, I, so. I get that, but still, that's huge. Like, he hits his home. Oh, yeah. He doesn't travel. Yeah. That's a big deal. So. um, So, I I respect that decision because I, I'm certain there were many people who were like, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Some of the other just pointed fun facts. McDowell did meet Gene Kelly later. <laughs> and Gene Kelly walked away from him in disgust. <laughs> that's, that's about as good of an interaction with Gene Kelly as you can expect. Gene Kelly's such an asshole. I know, but it's just so it's perfect the, it's and so, so appropriate. appropriate. It's, it's That's the best ever. Like, the only way it could be better is if you told me that Gene Kelly spat on him because I would just love it. Oh, it's just like, yeah, no. And I can imagine Malcolm in the moment being like, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Sorry, dude. <laughs> this was the first movie in history to use Dolby sound. Oh, okay, cool. Kubrick again approached Pink Floyd to soundtrack this movie. He wanted to use Pink Floyd's Adam Hart Mother Suite from their album, Adam Hart Mother. But Kubrick's insistence on total control of the cuts and edits in the music led Pink Floyd to turn it down. Mm, I get that. Kubrick was fascinated by the German voice actor who overdubbed Alex's lines. Mm -hmm. 
so much so he he said that he thought it was actually better than Malcolm's voice. That's how good he thought it was. Interesting. And he personally selected him to dub for Ryan O'Neill in Barry Lyndon mm. and Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Interesting. Because of how good he thought it was. Well, good on you, voice actors. I know. Woohoo! Malcolm McDowell's costume was actually inspired from him coming in from with his cricket gear. Oh, okay. Yeah. He was an avid cricketer and came in with his gear one day and Kubrick was looking at it. And Kubrick does this a lot. He mm-hmm. uses the clothes of the actors yeah, just to, to create ins- a natural to feel. Inspire, yeah. And he said, well, put the shirt and the cup on. And, you know, Malcolm's like, okay, well, I'll put it down where I normally do. And he's like, no, put it on over your pants. And that's how they got the look. Yeah. So it's just his cricket gear. Mm-hmm. His dirty, dirty cricket gear. Yeah, and finally, this film was completed between September 1970 and April 1971, making it the fastest production of a Stanley Kubrick film in his career. That, yeah, that, that plays. Mm-hmm. Oscars. Oh, yes. We've talked about this year before because this was the year that the French Connection won. Ah, the French, that movie's so weird. Uh, yeah, we talked about that last year. Yeah, we did. We did that for our best picture series for yeah. our first Oscars. Yeah, David will throw a link to that in the along with the Singing in the Rain episode in our show notes. Sure. So, best picture, obviously, the French Connection won. Last picture show, Nicholas and Alexandra, Fiddler on the Roof, and Clockwork Orange was up. Let me say this: after having seen this movie again, mm-hmm. no fucking way was this ever going to win Oscars. All right, Fiddler on the Roof, people. And last picture I show. I've seen Fiddler on the Roof, and I'm like, yeah, it's that. But like just in general, this movie was never going to win Oscars. No. It is too hardcore no. for the Academy in 1971. I feel like set like costume design stuff. Maybe, but it didn't get nominated. So Okay, but cares? like and like cinematography, those are the types of awards that the the weirdo films get nominated for. It's true. But like the fact that it did get nominated is pretty interesting. That is amazing. On the other hand, Midnight Cowboy won Best Picture and it was an X-rated film. So was this the only award it was nominated for? No, it oh. was nominated for directing. Okay. Norman Jewison was nominated for Fiddler on the Roof, John Schlesinger for Sunday Bloody Sunday, Peter Bogdanovich for Last Picture Show, and of course, William Friedkin won for The French Connection. Mm-hmm. Editing. Blech. Up for editing. Koch was nominated. Summer of 42, The Andromeda Strain, and the winner... The French, French connection, connection, which I recall which, us being like, like no, 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 yeah, hands yeah, down, you get it. that you, wins. You get it, you win. <laughs> and finally, adapted screenplay. Oh, God, no. <sighs> it's better than Ernest Tidyman winning for the French connection. I 100% agree with that. I think that's when we're like, what the fuck? The winner that year should have been Larry McMurtry and Peter Bogdanovich for The Last Picture Show. God, that movie's got an amazing script. And then finally... We've got to mention the score for this film. So this isn't the first classical score that Kubrick's done. No. What's interesting about this movie is that it also incorporates Wendy Carlos's work, who did Switched on Bach. She was a pioneer of electronic music. Mm -hmm. So she's doing a lot of electronic versions of classical classical pieces. And infinitely tied to this movie is the wonderful Ninth Symphony of one Mr. Ludwig van. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending was a bit of the old Ludwig van. Which you might also recognize is the intro music for 
this podcast and has been since we started it. Hey, guess where I got that from? Yeah. And what's funny is that the second I hear it, <laughs> my that my brain goes, hey, everybody, welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait, what's happening? Who turned on my podcast? Despite it being such a prominent feature in the movie, mm-hmm. the majority of the classical score comes from Rossini. Yes. And his pieces, including the William Tell Overture yeah. and things like that. That's that's just the ninth is the one that they use to torture him with. Oh, yeah. And they use Wendy Carlos's version mm-hmm. when we've got the speakers blasting, yeah, which, is, which cool. is so unsettling. Super cool. I like it. Wendy Carlos, also a trans pioneer. Oh, awesome. And, you know, being a complete and utter trailblazer in electronic mm-hmm. music, she was like right alongside some of the biggest names of creating that stuff. The Moogs and the... Oh, sweet. The, all the different yeah. electronic people in the world. So it's really cool and really prescient of Kubrick to think, mm-hmm. I'm going to use that for this movie. Mm-hmm. Just a little little taste of where I came up with that from. Okay. All right. How many glasses of Milk Plus? Milk Plus. The Corova Milk Bar sold Milk Plus. Milk Plus Velocet or Sintamesk or Drencrum. Which is what we were drinking. Oh, this is tough. This is really tough. Yeah. Because I think in this discussion, as we've talked about, there's so many interesting things that are happening on screen, and yet it doesn't hold together. I'm going to go with the two and a half. Okay. And I'm going to say that also saying, don't do it if it's going to really mess with you. But if you aren't going to be triggered by what's involved with it, watch it. Because I, I, it is fascinating. And what he does with the camera and on screen is visually stunning. It's just really hard to watch. It's mediocre in a fascinating way. <laughs> which is really hard to say. I'll but... accept that. I'm going to go with my gut with a two. Okay. One point for Malcolm McDowell. One point for the visuals. Yeah. Not the bad visuals. The innovative filmmaking visuals the overall tone and and visual style of what we're watching yeah i'm into it it's cool (laughs) it's a lot there's so much yeah it's kind of it's fun though like you have to do the notes this time i've been doing all the notes for a while well and i love doing the notes because like i said what was great about this movie was going oh this is so cringy to watch and then reading the context and going okay, mm-hmm. now I'm able to gauge it better. Yeah. I can either gauge it and go, oh, shit, this is a monstrosity and mm-hmm. we should never watch it. Or I can go, oh, there is some context and some nuance to this story. Yeah. And that's enlightening and helps me see the movie in a new way. Because these movies shouldn't just be hailed as masterpieces just because everybody says they are. Yeah. I think they're incredibly great films Mm -hmm. from a filmmaking standpoint but they're not all good movies correct so next up it's full metal jacket this movie is great i am very interested especially after watching apocalypse now to see how you react to this movie this came out after apocalypse now right oh this yeah this came out in 1987 okay there are some legit 80s actors that you will know from this movie Uh, well i already know adam baldwin's in it as animal mother matthew modine Oh, Matthew Modine. I love Matthew Modine. Matthew Modine is our lead. <sighs> okay. Like, I know I know almost nothing about this film besides what's Vincent D'Onofrio and the story about him gaining an obscene amount of weight, yep. which he has said is not entirely accurate. But yeah, I know, I know that stuff. 
And a lot of people say, you know, well, you only need to watch the first third of this movie. I will contend that even though that basic training segment of the movie is incredible, mm-hmm. the rest of this movie is really fucking good, too. Okay. Well, now you're setting me up. I better not be disappointed. You probably will be. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I really think this one might be up your alley. I cool. just we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Interesting. All right. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. What's your movie? You have to go first. Why do we have to have this argument every time? Because that's how we work. This is season three, David. It's never going to end. I know. It's just the bit. We're both so bad at that. (laughs) We should just change it at this point. No, that's good. No, it's fun to argue.